Hello, listeners, and welcome back to part one of our final podcast in our podcast series for the Aging Before Learning Collaborative. We're your hosts, Taylor and Sophia, and we're student representatives in the Aging PCORE Learning Collaborative, a project that shares the benefits and methods of patient-centered outcomes research, or PCORE, with researchers, older adults, funders, and gerontology programs. The collaborative aims to help researchers engage older adults in the design of research. As students and aspiring researchers ourselves, Taylor and I are also interested in learning about this process. And we've decided to host this podcast series as a means of discovering the challenges, opportunities, and strategies of engagement. And we had the opportunity to chat with some pretty amazing guests along the way. Throughout this series, we've spoken with a host of different stakeholders in the engaged research world, including researchers, older adults, and funders. And today we'll hear from some of the stakeholders in our own project. So much of this project is guided by stakeholders across two advisory structures. So three members of our older adult subcommittee are joining us to interview Dr. Paul Nash, a researcher with a history of including older adult engagement in his research. In this episode, we'll not only hear from Dr. Nash about the strategies he deploys for successful engagement, but also learn about the interests, priorities, and suggestions of older adult stakeholders. Welcome, everyone. We're excited to have you with us today. Before we start, Dr. Nash, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? So thank you very much for inviting me along to be part of your podcast. Um, As you can hear from my accent, I am not from the United States. I'm originally from the United Kingdom, um, where I qualified as a psychologist and worked in the Center for Innovative Aging in Swansea University for just over 10 years. And that was really where I got my basis for Um, participatory research and inclusion, because that was really the ethos of that center. And about four years ago, I moved over to the University of Southern California, where I'm an associate professor in the Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. And again, I've taken that ethos that I learned in the UK around participatory inclusion to really inform my research areas. So my main areas of research are around discrimination and intersectional stigma to understand the lived experiences of a wide intersection of older adults, taking it from a life course perspective, but making sure at each point, we're making sure the voices of older adults are included. So we need to take older adults in that participatory inclusion method to ensure that they are represented and that they are also being involved at every single stage. So that's really where I come from. And I think that's really where we meld together as an organization. Thank you, Dr. Nash, for that fantastic introduction. One of the nice things about being virtual is that we get to connect with people from from all over the place. It's really wonderful to have you with us. Um, So let's just get right to our first question, which is from Beverly, who not only sits on our subcommittee, but also serves as an older adult advisor on our project management team. So go ahead, Bev. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Nash. I have a couple of questions. First, can you explain what ageism is and how ageism affects women of color? And then the second question that I have is, how many isms must I navigate through to be valued and seen as a person of means and potential, including helping to decide research priorities? Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Beverly. Wow, what a series of questions to start with. 
So let's try and unpack those in the order that you asked me, if that's okay. But please feel free to interrupt if I uh, don't address anything that you, you mentioned. So what do we mean by ageism? In its purest form, it's just discrimination based on age. And we automatically jump to the assumption that it's going to be just about older people. But it's not. It cuts both ways. If we've ever made comments about entitled millennials, for example, that's an age-based discrimination. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking about it from the other perspective, but I just wanted to highlight that it does cut both ways. So ageism can take many, many forms. Um, it can be as simple as somebody making an assumption about you based purely on your age. It can be based in policy, where policies only are enacted for people of certain age groups. It can be stereotyping. But one of the real problems with ageism that comes with no other form of prejudice is that it also becomes internalized across the life course. So if you think about your age, or you think about your life as a long line, you start acquiring ageist attitudes from as early as five or six years of age. Then when you reach 50, 60, 70, 80, you've had a whole life course of acquiring these attitudes. And then when you see yourself as the focus of these attitudes, i.e. an older person, you can't just throw away that experience. And that's when we see something called the stereotype embodiment, where you actually start to believe these attitudes or you start to believe these stereotypes about yourself. And they can have really negative consequences. So some research is evidence that older adults that have these negative attitudes about their own age can live on average seven and a half years less than those people that have a positive attitude about their uh, own age. But I think the interesting thing about your question is you, you mentioned, for example, being a woman of colour. And that's really when we bring something called intersectionality into the frame. Um, intersectionality was a, a, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who actually looked at intersectionality based on the exact question that you posed. So women of colour. So if we think about how we experience life, um, well, how do we experience life? Well, we know, for example, men and women experience life differently. We know that women in the same job earn less than men. We know that around the world, women have less rights than men. Then if we add race to that, we know, for example, people of colour have uh, a harder uphill struggle than those people who are white or Caucasian. And then if we add those together, we don't just get an additive effect, we get a multiplier. So it's what we call that cumulative disadvantage because it doesn't just happen once in your life, it happens multiple times. And it's not just the experience that you have, it's also that anticipatory stigma. So for example, you might be a, a black woman and have experienced discrimination based on either being a woman or being black, but then you go into a new environment having had that experience before and then anticipating you're going to have it again. And that impacts the way that you perform, it impacts your self-esteem, and it also impacts the way that you're going to engage with new people. So it's not just the stigma itself, but actually that anticipatory or even the lived experience from before that comes into inform how you're going to interact with new people. So if you then add other layers of this intersectionality, we can start to see the complexity because it's not just being a woman, but being a black woman that makes 
uh, that engagement harder than, for example, a white woman or, for example, a black man. So we've got multiple levels of stigma that interact with each other as they go through. And then when you talked about uh, how that means, uh, how many different levels of stigma you have to feel, well, I would love to say that you don't have to feel any levels of stigma before you start to feel valued or before you start to be prioritized. But we also live in the real world. And unfortunately, stigma, stereotyping and negative attitudes are rife amongst every society. I'm not going to turn around and say that stereotyping is bad per se, because what we do is we use stereotyping as a way of reducing our cognitive load. So you don't look at a person that you see in the street and take in every minute detail about what their hair looks like, what their um, clothes look like, whereabouts you are in the world. Are you in an office? Are you in a coffee shop? You have these um, what we call cognitive images or uh, schemata about where you are. And that's based on stereotypes, because if we had to take in all of this information every single time, we just end up with a huge headache every single day. So um, stereotyping per se isn't bad, but it's how we do it. That's the problem. It's based around uh, social norms. And they're the things that we really need to start changing. And that's really where that prejudice comes into it. And I think one of the ways in which we can address that is being at the table. So we've all heard about representation being important. And I can't oversell that enough because one of the huge ways in which we can change attitudes is by having exposure. So if we've got negative attitudes, for example, about older people, they're largely based on that medical model of aging. Oh, well, we know older people can't do this because they've all got dementia or they're all frail. My grandmother is 94 years of age. She walks around, she lives in her own house, she does her own cooking, her own cleaning, she's got a two-story house. She is none of those things. And that was basically the model of aging that I grew up with. So I didn't really face that stereotype. But many people do. And unless we see active older people, and I'm not talking about making sure that all older people are seen jumping out of airplanes, skydiving or something extreme like that, but just doing everyday tasks. Older people can use computers. Older people can balance their checkbooks. Older people can go out running in the park. All of these things that we don't associate with aging, we need to really imagine or start to really question ourselves why we don't see that for older people. Because I know for a fact, and I'm sure you do as well, older people do all of these things, as do older people of colour. And it's all of these negative stereotypes that we can only really address by having people at the table and being represented. And that is really why this participatory inclusion is so important for research, but also really important for practice and policy as well. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Beverly, for asking that question. Dr. Nash, for addressing such an important topic. Uh, I think it's excellent that you've kind of delved into ageism and intersectionality here because these are terms I'm seeing used quite a bit in the classroom now. Um, and I think conversations exactly like this are needed to move the needle. Uh, so, Loretta, uh, why don't you go ahead and ask your question, please? Hello, Dr. Nash. How are you? Um, I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Good. Um, I enjoyed that. What you said, it touched on my question, which is um, sometimes as older adults, um, we feel talked down to and um, like we're less capable. Okay, so 
when you design your surveys and uh, research tools, um, do you consider the participants um, you, when choosing your words um, you use? I think another fantastic question. I can't emphasize the importance of language enough. And we use um, language every single day to communicate. And sometimes we think about the words that we say and other times we don't. But it's when we don't think about the words we say that they have unintended consequences. And one of the things that we find with older people and some of your listeners may have experienced this as well, is you mentioned being talked down to. But what we find is that it's often baby talk or what we see elders speak that older people experience. It's like, oh, they're there. Don't worry about it. Everything will be okay. So if you wouldn't speak to a 21-year-old male in that way, why would you speak to a a 60-year-old woman like that, for example? So we've got to look at the language that we're using. And speaking down to people actually has that impact I mentioned before around attitudes about making older adults feel less valued and as such, they're less likely to contribute. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about, um, uh, do I take into account language, especially when we're designing surveys? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I totally believe in something in the UK we call participatory inclusion, which is slightly different from person-centered research, but I think it kind of means the same thing in the US whereby older people are involved in every single stage of the research. That doesn't just mean that we involve older people in collecting the data, but if we decide that there's a research topic we're interested in, well, we'll speak to older people and say, well, is this a topic of interest to you? How do you think we should broach this? What kind of research methods do you think we should be using? Are there any particular people of interest that we should be including that we haven't thought of? And then comes the point of, well, how do we design this survey? How do we design this uh, data collection? And that includes words. And that's really important because not only we don't want to speak down to people, but let's be honest, academics use words that nobody else in their right mind would use. So we have to put this in real term language. So, okay, we talked about intersectionality, but if we hadn't had that conversation, a few people wouldn't have understood that. So if we just put the word intersectionality, we're inviting a whole lot of misunderstanding into the conversation. And I think really that's where most of the issues come from around ageism is a lack of understanding. So our job as academics really is there to add that clarity. And one of the ways of adding that clarity is including older people at every single level of the research. So I think older people need to be included in the design. Older people need to be included in the data collection. Older people need to be included in the analysis. And more importantly, they need to be included in that dissemination because they have to not only have engaged with that research and agree with the outcomes, but also agree with how they are being implemented or applied as well. Because the way I look at it when I conduct research with old people is that data does not belong to me. Mm-hmm. That's being shared with me by the older people who've had these lived experiences. So if I don't value, if I don't cherish that data, then I'm doing them and myself a disservice. Right. So it really is about respecting the people as part of that research process. And as you mentioned, language generally is really important to make sure that we aren't um, devaluing the contribution of other people. And I think one of the prime examples is the way in which 
language around research has definitely changed to include the, the idea of older people rather than the elderly, for example. Because we hear the word elderly and it's synonymous with frailty. It shouldn't be, but it is. So when we talk about older people, it's much more empowering because somebody who is 30 is older than somebody who's 20. Somebody who is 70 is older than somebody who is 60. So it's much more about understanding a life course perspective rather than having these very um, pointed and often uh, really powerful, but not in the right way, terms used. Thank you. No, thank you. Fantastic question. Thank you both. Thank you, Loretta, for bringing that up, that we have a whole uh, resource library in our project dedicated to more tools like what uh, Dr. Nash was just describing around strategies for engaging older adults in research, because as Dr. Nash was saying, it's so, so important that those voices are informing every step of the process so that the research is meaningful. Um, and we will explain how to access that library at the end of the podcast. Um, but now I believe that Myrna has a question. So Myrna, go on ahead. Thank you so much. Dr. Nash, your responses are so terrific and thoughtful and meaningful. And from my point of view, language creates reality. And when you use words that are so loaded um, with negative connotation, it does create other people's reality. So I'm so glad you brought that up. So I have a question for you. And my question is, how is ageism? And maybe I'd like to say how is olderism instead of the word ageism, because that too has a connotation, doesn't it? So how is ageism slash olderism preventing older folks from being able to help run programs or influence policies or research? Well, first of all, I'm going to say thank you for the question, but I'm also going to say thank you very much uh, for the comments about my, my answers. And I want to uh, throw the compliment back to all of the other people that have taken part so far, because I can only answer the amazing questions that are being asked. So thank you. And thank you again for your amazing question as well. Um, no one's making this easy for me. There's so many parts to this question. Um, so when we look at ageism and how it impacts people being involved, we can pick that apart to several different layers. And I'm going to ha hold my hands up on behalf of the whole of the research community. We are not good at this either. We often say, oh, older people say this, older people believe this. But then we're grouping everybody over the age of 60 as an older person. So that means everybody who's 60, 70, 80, 90 or 100 has the same opinions. But would we ever say that about people from the age of 20 to 60? Absolutely not. So we need to be very, very careful about these generalizations. And that is part of the problem. So ageism, part of it, and you said it perfectly well when you said olderism, is because we make the assumption that all older adults are the same. And we do something called homogenizing them. So we think they all have the same characteristics. When that is absolutely not true. And I like to think of it very much as a, as a tree. I, if you bear with me and indulge my analysis, uh, indulge my um, simile here. So imagine a tree. Um, a, a young sapling at the start of its life is only going to have one or two branches. But add 60 or 70 years to that, there are branches going off in every direction. We are literally like that tree. At every point through our lives, we make new decisions. Every decision leads to a different outcome and new experiences. 
So when we reach the end of our lives or when we reach our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond, we are more different than any other age we have been before. So we shouldn't be looking at older adults as homogenous. In fact, they are very, very diverse. And we need to reflect that diversity in the research and the way in which we approach the problem. Um, when we are talking about how older people are often excluded from research, it may very well be, if you look at some of the research, especially around the uh, research around sexuality and sexual health, that generally stops around the age of about 60, and recently it's gone up to about 70, making the assumption that older adults aren't engaged in that side of their life. And that is based purely on ageism. Research that specifically looked at this, we understand that older adults are engaged in that aspect of their life until the point where they die. And that's a, a really important part. Physicality is a huge, hugely important part of human existence. But the stereotypes in research exclude older people from that process. And it's not just the, the attitudes of the researchers, but also based on the previous questions that we've had as well. It's that internalization. So when older people get spoken down to, or when older people get excluded, or when they experience intersectional stigma, they start to devalue their contributions. Think, well, no one's going to be interested in what I say anyway. So you might have a research call that comes out and say, please participate. But then you'll also get then those older adults that will sit there and go, well, maybe you don't want to hear what I've got to say. What do I have to say that's of value? And that's only because of that internalization and the reinforcement of these social norms that old people can't contribute to society anymore. But what we know is that older people contribute to society in such a myriad of ways that are often overlooked. Because not only are they still economically active, but they're also providing the majority of the care, both as informal caregivers to partners, but as terms of grandparenting, in terms of volunteering in the community, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on, but we don't acknowledge that. And that can be really problematic for old people themselves who then start to believe that devalued contribution. So what we need to do again is include older people. It's about making research easy to access for older people. It's about making these calls very, very open. And I alluded slightly to um, earlier on the problem that older adults have in these myriad of responsibilities that they have, that we say, okay, come and take part in research on a Monday morning at nine o'clock till 10 o'clock. Well, what happens if you've got caregiving responsibilities? What happens if you've got work? What happens if you're grandparenting? All of these other things that might stop older people being included. We need to have more flexibility to make sure that this data is representative because age representation is massively important to enable us to change these attitudes, both for policy, both for practitioners, but also to change the attitudes that older people have themselves about their own worth in research. Because I continue to learn on a daily basis some amazing things from some amazing participants that I couldn't hope to learn from somebody in their 20s, 30s that might have huge amounts of knowledge in the field of aging, but just hasn't lived that experience. Well, thank you, Myrna and Dr. Nash. I'm just soaking this knowledge up. What an excellent first round of questions for Dr. Nash. I felt this discussion was so thoughtful and I'm excited for others to hear it. 
With that said, we're far from finished. Please join us for part two of this episode where Dr. Nash will continue to respond to questions from our older adult subcommittee. So thank you to Beverly, Loretta, and Myrna for your contributions to part one of our final podcast. We're really excited to hear from more of our subcommittee members in part two. In the meantime, you can be an active participant in this project by joining our Aging Research Network. The Aging Research Network is an online community that brings together older adults, researchers, caregivers, and others to learn about stakeholder engagement in research. By becoming a new member, you can post about your passions, ask questions about research, visit our resource library, and connect with others. To find the Aging Research Network, type agingresearch.mn.co into your search bar. This podcast was funded through a Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, Eugene Washington PCORI Engagement Award.